You know, I was thinking this week, uh, wow, we've got a lot of scripture to cover. And sometimes it's hard to maybe focus during the whole of a, a Bible reading. There are a couple of things I want to share with you about that. Uh, first of all, in the earliest church, uh, Paul and, and the other apostles would write these letters. And they would read them to the churches and to the congregations. You know, he'd write a letter to the church in Ephesus. And the leaders, uh, probably Timothy in the church of Ephesus, would pick up the letter, and they just read it straight out to the church. That's how it worked. They didn't have it written in a Bible yet. They didn't have PowerPoint. They couldn't say, okay, everyone, you know, go home. We're going to make Xerox copies of all of this, and you can read this at home. Uh, reading Scripture together in this sort of way is something that the church has historically done. And it's actually really important for us to do it this way. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 4, uh, it says that the Word of God is living and active, Sharper than any two-edged sword, it penetrates to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow, and it judges the very thoughts and attitudes of the heart. See, I think sometimes, at least for me and, and maybe for you, I start to think, you know, I need some scripture to, you know, make clear what's going on in the sermon. But really, the sermon is supposed to make clear what's happening in scripture. Scripture comes first. So that's why we got the whole reading this morning, and that's why in the, past, you know, in the future, as we think about this, we might get other longer readings as well. But to give you an idea of where we've been, last week, we're, we're in the middle of this three-week series uh, from 1 Corinthians, uh, chapters 8 through 10. And last week, we talked about food sacrificed to idols. If you're here, you might remember that. Uh, of course, we don't experience in our daily lives, can I eat this food? I think it's been sacrificed to an idol. That's not our cultural context that we live in. But in asking this question, uh, the church at Corinth, you saying, can we eat food sacrificed to idols or not, actually reveals something that's really important about how we need to live in a culture and in a society where there is rampant disagreement. Where we can't, sometimes it feels like, man, we can't agree on anything at all. Churches, of course, aren't immune to disagreement. Uh, many is the church. I mean, there's a reason, first of all, where we've got so many denominations in the first place. It wasn't because it's like, well, I live in a town called Presbyterian, and therefore we'll just call the church Presbyterian. You must be from the town called Baptist or something. No, it's, it's because we had disagreements in the past, and we couldn't work them out, and so we actually divided and split over these sorts of things. Now, the good news is that I think denominationalism has changed a lot over the past uh, hundred years in particular, where these days, now we're more like, okay, you know, we're the Presbyterians, and that means we are the best, but the Baptists are okay as well. They're part of the family. And in some senses, the, the denominational differences that we have, we recognize them as actually helpful and valuable, not because nobody's right and not because everybody's right, but because nobody always is right all the time. And when we come together and share life together, whether we're Baptist or Presbyterian or uh, Methodist or, or non-denominational, which, by the way, is pretty much a denomination these days, no matter what, when we come together, we can say the important thing is, are we following Jesus Christ? And now, how do we learn from each other and grow together? I think denominationalism is changing in that way a lot, in a lot of ways, even if not in every way. 
But it is true that we still have disagreements in our churches and outside of our churches as well that divide. And that was the real issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. There are some people who are saying, we are smart. We know that idols aren't really a thing. We know that there is only one God, so it doesn't matter if we eat food sacrificed to idols because we're not actually worshiping those idols. We're worshiping the one God. And Paul says, you're right. That's true and good knowledge. The problem is that you're operating only out of your knowledge and not out of love for each other. That's the problem. There are people in your church, Paul says, they don't have your knowledge. When they see you eating food sacrificed to idols, they assume you're worshiping idols, and so they think it's okay for them to worship idols as well. And so by your knowledge, your weaker brother is destroyed. And as a result, we talked about as Christians, we need to be careful in our exercise of knowledge. Because so often our exercise of knowledge becomes, I know, therefore I can. It's my right. Rights aren't a bad thing. Rights are a good and wonderful thing. But when we use them without care and concern for our neighbors, that's when we have a problem. So if we're going to live together in the midst of disagreement, it's good to know the truth. It's even necessary to know the truth. And, and by the way, there are certain truths that we don't compromise on. If it offends somebody that we say Jesus is Lord, we don't say, oh, okay, well, I won't say that anymore. Because Jesus really is Lord, and it's not loving to our neighbor to pretend otherwise. But in matters that are of secondary or third importance or fourth importance or really not that important at all, we say, I choose not to exercise my rights if it will damage anyone else. 1 Corinthians 8 gives us the negative side of this. Don't damage people by the exercise of your rights. But 1 Corinthians 9 gives us a different perspective. It says, what good... Not just what damage do you prevent, but what good comes out of not exercising your rights? So Paul uses an example from his own life. Did you catch it? He says, when I am out doing my ministry, this is the ministry that God has called me to, and he has given me the right to reap a material harvest among the people, not to become wealthy off of you, but to have my daily needs supplied. Now, I think this is an important distinction, first of all, because it does tell us something about how we ought to look at money as a church. There are people who serve in the church, and because they serve in the church, might need some sort of compensation. Everybody's looking at me right now. <laughs> and Paul's saying, that's not wrong. That's not bad. He says, that's what the other apostles are doing. But Paul says, in my ministry, it would be a stumbling block if I took that right for myself. In my ministry, if I exercised the rights that are mine in Jesus Christ, it would make it harder for me to tell people about Jesus. And so Paul says, even though I have this right, he goes on for half the chapter saying, this is my right. 
If you don't believe me, let me explain to you how this is my right to to get my support, my material, physical support from you because I gave you a spiritual good and now you share your material goods with me. So he wants him to understand this is absolutely his right to do this. In verse 15, he changes tax. He says, but I have not used any of these rights. And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. Right? He's saying this isn't a, you know, like a back alley way of saying, you know, I haven't asked for support before, but I could really use some now. It's not what I'm doing, Paul says. I don't want your money. He says, as a matter of fact, uh, I feel so strongly about this. I would rather die than take your money. Even though it's my right. I would rather die than exercise my rights. Actually, if, if you take a look at this in the original Greek, it's really interesting because it's a sentence fragment. The NIV and most, uh, most English translations translate it something like this. They say, uh, I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. Because that's the easiest, I mean, it's really a hard passage to translate it. But it's more like this. I haven't used any of these rights, and I'm not writing so that you will give me those rights. I would rather die. Now I have this boast as a result. He's he's ending that sentence in a sense there. He's so impassioned about this. I don't want what's mine by right. And of course, the question is why? 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 Well, he goes on. He says, I I haven't used any of these rights. Uh, When I preach the gospel, I can't boast. I can't boast. Why? Because I'm discharging a duty. I'm, I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach. It's not voluntary. It's not an option. God, (laughs) excuse me, (coughs) God made me for this. I don't have a choice in the matter. It is my duty and my responsibility. Now, I don't know if you remember uh, maybe a time when you have kids or a time when you were a kid. And uh, as a parent or maybe your parents said to you, I want you to do this chore. Remember doing chores? Anyone? I know we're all still doing chores, but but your parents maybe gave you chores. And did you ever resist the chores that your parents gave you? Oh, man, I got someone out there going, no. (laughs) Well, let me just say you were a wiser person than I, because I resisted, right? I don't want to do that. Ian, take out the garbage. Nah. And you know, I, I remember, maybe some of you can identify, the rest of you will judge me, but I remember uh, you know, my, my parents would come in and say, Ian, it's trash night. You need to go get the trash from all the house and take it up and, and haul the trash cans up to the curb. It's, okay, later, I'll, I'll get to it. Yeah, and if you're parents, you've, you've been on both sides of this. You're like, later. Later is the worst answer. Later means no. Later means, and of course, that's really you know, what happened with me. It's like, oh yeah, I'll get to it. And I just wait and wait and wait and wait. Eventually, you know, some nights I might have just gone to bed without doing it. But we'd have fights and arguments, you know, and my, my parents, uh, uh, we'd, I'd be like, why do I need to do all of this dumb stuff? Like, I didn't make the garbage. 
right? I didn't cook the food. Why do I have to do the dishes? You know, you got all these reasons. It's, it's not my job. It's somebody else's job. Do you remember how your parents may have responded to you? Said, you are part of this household. And being part of this household means you have certain responsibilities, you have certain duties, and you need to take care of them. And maybe you might have even said something like, well, will you at least give me a little bit of money for doing it? Like, so I can go out with my friends to the movies and say, no. No. Why not? Because it's your job, it's your responsibility. Now, you might get paid for some jobs you do around the house, uh, and I think there are multiple reasons why parents do that, but some of them, they say, no, that's just your job. You are responsible for that. Then, of course, we all became adults, and we moved out, and we found out, oh, man, we really are responsible for all of this stuff because there are no parents to do it when I don't do it at all, and it just builds up and builds up and builds up. Uh, I know that most of us probably have that experience around taking out the trash, right? I think we can fit a little more trash in there. I don't need to take it out yet. Yeah. Uh, we will be doing marital counseling after the service today. <clears throat> Paul's saying, that's what preaching the gospel is for me. It is a responsibility. As a member of God's household, this is what he made me for, and this is what he called me to do. And I can't boast if I would do it. I don't earn anything if I would do it. This is just what it means for me to follow Jesus. He says, what then is my reward? What then is my boast, Paul is saying? Now, we know as Christians, we're not supposed to boast, right? That's pride, and pride's a, pride comes before the fall. Pride's a bad thing. We don't go around telling people, this is how great I am. But that's not really what Paul is talking about here. In the Old Testament, there's this sense of, we will not boast in anything except for in our God, and we will boast in him forever and ever and ever. We won't say, look at us, we're so great. Look at the job we do obeying God. Look at the great things that we've accomplished as a nation. Look at how good we are. Instead, we'll say, look at how good our God has been to us. That's what it means to boast in the Lord. As you're living your life, what are the things that you're, you invest your life in? You spend your time on? You ever think about how we use that word spend in terms of time? You know, I, I spend my time on this. For me, I, I, I usually just think of it as that's where I'm going, that's what I'm doing. It's just a way of describing time and duration. But I think that word spend is actually a, a really meaningful way of describing it. As if our time was currency. Like it was money and it was limited. And so I choose what I will spend that limited resource on. And this is what Paul is saying. How will I spend my life in such a way that I'll be able to say, look at how great God is? What is my reward? What is my boast? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. 
Now remember, this is Paul's boast in the Lord. It's not his, his boast about himself. It's not so that he can go before God someday and say, you know, you gave me a job, but I didn't just do that job. I went the extra mile and I did it even better. And you should think of me as someone really great. You should give me extra reward. You should give me a place of honor in your kingdom. That's not what Paul means. Paul says that the ministry itself is his reward. See, when... When we live apart from God, we live in a context of scarcity, don't we? How will I get all the things I need to survive? Because it's on me. But when we live our life fully in Jesus Christ, we live at God's table, and he's the one responsible to put the food on it. So this doesn't mean, obviously, that what we should just do is like sit around and twiddle our thumbs and wait for God to literally put food on the table. But it means that we can go places where it doesn't appear that there will be a benefit. It means that we can go places where it looks like we will be needy and be confident that God will meet those needs. See, Paul's boast is essentially... I don't collect money from you, as is my right, as would make my life easier. It would make it more certain. I would know where my next paycheck is coming from. I would know how I'm going to get that food that I need tomorrow if I was getting your support. But I gave up all of those rights so that I would see God provide instead. So that I would actually not just be sharing the gospel, but I would be living the gospel in front of everybody. People would look at me and say, well, Paul's talking about this God who provides for everyone, who provides a a solution for sin, who takes care of our daily needs, who loves us deeply. And when I look at the way he lives and the way he ministers and the way he gives up his rights to provide for himself, I see God providing for him instead. He says, this is my boast. That's my reward. That against all odds, against the way we understand the world to normally work, I have enough for each day. Not only this, Paul says, not only am I actually living out the gospel, but I get a greater harvest in my work for the gospel. More people will get to know who Jesus is because they'll know that I'm not doing this just to make a living. They'll know that I'm not doing this you know, just because uh, I, I think I'm earning points with God somehow. They'll know I'm not doing this to get rich off of them. They'll know that the only thing I care about is Jesus Christ. If you go to the beginning of the uh, book of 1 Corinthians, uh, or actually maybe it's 2 Corinthians. I didn't look this up before we uh, did the sermon. It just popped into my head. Paul says, When I was with you, Corinthians... I resolve to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. I didn't come to you with fancy words or fancy speeches. I didn't have convincing arguments. I just shared Jesus with you so that your faith wouldn't rely on clever strategies or on man's power, but on the power of God in the Holy Spirit. 
Now, there's something hopeful for that in all of us, because I I think a lot of us are intimidated to tell people about Jesus because we're like, I don't want to mess it up, right? I want to say it in a way that people can hear and understand, and that will make them think well of me, or at least think that I'm not an idiot. And Paul's reminding us, you don't, the power is not in you. It's not about your cleverness or your strategies. It's about the God who died and rose again. It's his job to do the heavy lifting. It's your job to show up. Isn't that great? Wouldn't that be wonderful? You know, uh, when I was a banker, uh, I had a... I was learning how to do all this stuff. Banking is this highly regulated industry. You have to be really careful in everything that you do. If, if you do uh, mortgage lending or something like that, you know about it, right? All the papers have to be filled out right. The, you know, the I's dotted, the T's crossed, and it's complicated, and it's more complicated every year. And I'm not good with detail-oriented sorts of work, so I'd make lots of mistakes. And... Uh, and some days it was hard to come to work. Because you feel like, man, I, I just feel like I'm making mistakes all the time. And even if you're not in a highly regulated industry, you've had days like that, don't, haven't you? I don't want to go there. I don't want to be with that person because last time I saw him, I messed up. I don't want to you know, keep doing my job because I embarrassed myself with failure last time. But see, in God's kingdom economy, He doesn't call you because of how qualified you are. He uses you because of how qualified he is. He says, you just show up and I'll do the rest. Paul says, I'm not going to exercise my rights. I'd rather die if they will prevent or even impair the success of the gospel in any way. And the irony is, Paul finds real life in this. That's why he'd rather die. Paul is not living a glum life, you know, kicking his feet on the ground and uh, another day where I got to deny my rights all day. Another day where I don't get anything that I want. He says, no, every day is a day where I see the gospel at work powerfully in me. I think so many of us are satisfied with a life where we just add Jesus on top of everything else. Where you just say, you know, life is pretty good. You know what would make it just that much better? Is if there was a good God out there who cared for me. That'd be neat. You know, if, if I just had the assurance that when hard times came, there's a God out there, and he'll help me, that would, that would do it. If I just had this community of, of people that I share life with, and you know, we worship God together, and it's nice, and it's fun, I just need Jesus to make my life a little bit better. And if he'd do that, I'd be happy. <clears throat> But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Paul says at the end of the 
chapter 9 here, starting in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. I, I actually had notes for the sermon, and I forgot to bring them in with me. And on them was a quote from Vince Lombardi, one of the most famous NFL coaches of all time. And he was uh, famous for how much he won. He won almost everything that he set out to do. He won uh, five championships with the Green Bay Packers, and I think it was the late 40s, early 50s. He won the first Super Bowl with the Green Bay Packers. And when he was, he, somebody you know, was talking to him once, and he, he said something along the lines, I really wish I had the quote all written out in front of me, but he, he said essentially, winning is everything. He said, there is no second place. There's winning and there's everyone else. They're the losers. Uh, the NFL used to have uh, not just a championship game, but actually a game for third and fourth place. And uh, Lombardi's Packers played in it once. And I, I, he essentially said that was the loser bowl. He said it was the worst thing I ever had to do in my life. Coming in second is the same as coming in last. And that's the attitude that Paul is bringing out here, isn't it? Now, he's not saying that you and I are in competition with each other. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you've, ever, uh, if you've ever met Jehovah's Witnesses, I know they come door to door and you know, they, they talk about their faith, and, uh, and one of the distinctive wit uh, doctrines of the Jehovah's Witnesses is that 144,000 people get to go to the good heaven, 144,000. And every time one of those folks shows up at my door, I want to say, man, you are talking yourself right out of the good heaven. I mean, if you're smart, wouldn't you find 144,000 people? And then stop. Because if you add more, you might not make the cut. <laughs> now, our faith is not like that. Heaven's not a place where God's like, you know, we're going to run out of room eventually. You've got to make sure we keep the crowd down. We don't want heaven turning into San Francisco or something like that. That's not God's attitude toward this sort of thing. So when Paul says, run is to win the race, he's not saying run to beat all the people around you. He's saying, run as hard as you can. And if you look at the games, remember we had the Olympics this summer, and did you watch any of the track meets? Or, or maybe better yet, the marathon. Right? I would never watch the marathon, except for the very end of the marathon. Hey, you know, people, they've been running faster for like two hours than I have ever run in my entire life. And they, they finish the marathon, and they're like, yeah, they get to the end. And then what do they do? They puke. <laughs> they throw up. Sometimes they throw up on the race course, because that's how hard they're running. Folks, is our faith in Jesus Christ more important than the marathon? Is it the only thing of truly lasting and eternal importance? Is the work of Jesus Christ the only thing that truly transforms and changes our world? Then why are we so distracted? 
Why do we run like we're happy with finishing in the middle of the pack or even at the very end? As long as I cross the finish line, that's fine. You know, I've got mixed news for us if this is our attitude. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there's a reason we're pulling all out of Corinthians here because Paul's building on all of these ideas together. Uh, Paul talks about, hey, we are building something as followers of Jesus Christ. This is the foundation. The bottom is Jesus Christ. We don't add him onto the top to make our lives just that little bit better. We tear down all of our lives, put Jesus at the bottom, and start building on him. And if anyone builds on Jesus Christ using gold or silver or costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day, the day of the Lord, when God comes and he says, this is what it's all been about, and he reveals the truth about everything, the day will bring to light the substance of what we've built on Jesus Christ. It'll be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. And if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. Are we spending our lives making sure that we can have all of our worldly rights? No one better take away from me my ability to have a good job, my opportunity you know, to, to have that vacation, Nobody better take away from me the ability to, to build something in this world, a business, a family, a reputation. Those are my rights, and I need those. And Paul says, none of those compare. All of those are crowns, are gold medals that tarnish and fade away until they're no more. But we have the opportunity to run for a prize that lasts forever. When we're looking at each other and we have our disagreements, maybe in the church or maybe it's outside, you know, you're looking at politics, or you're looking at social issues, or you're looking at the schools, or you're looking at whatever else it is. You know, you've got the news on, and you're angry, because we're thinking, man, people are just ruining all of these good things. Paul's saying that's an exercise in missing the point. It's not that those things don't matter, that they're insignificant, it's not that there isn't real truth and real fiction to be sorted out. It's that our job is to point people to Jesus Christ. That's the thing that lasts forever. Uh, it's like that conversation I had with somebody once where we were talking about reasons they objected to Christianity. And I said, uh, you know, all of these things, I, I can grant all your objections. 
I can tell you, oh, you're right about that. I can tell you, you're right about that. But we still haven't touched on the core issue of Christianity, and that's Jesus Christ, who he was, and did he rise from the dead? And hearing back, I don't want to talk about anything if it means I have to change my life. That's the real battle. And so when we disagree with each other, why don't we point to the important thing? Why don't we say, okay, that's an important or meaningful issue, and I'm willing to have a conversation about that. But you need to understand how that conversation is is going to be informed. It's going to be by what happened 2,000 years ago on that hill where Jesus died, and what happened on the third day when he rose again from the dead. It always comes back to Jesus. You know, uh, I close with this last story. Uh, George Washington was a very well-respected person prior to the Revolutionary War. He'd worked hard to build a a name for himself. He'd worked hard to to create a career. He joined the the colonial militia uh, during the French and Indian War. And uh, he was always frustrated that he, he couldn't become an officer in the British Army because all the British Army officers looked down on the colonial troops, on the militia troops. And uh, as, as things progressed in the colonies and, and as uh, he became more and more frustrated with what he saw were the, the, the problems with British rule, he eventually joins the, the patriot cause Uh, And he shows up to those Continental Congresses as a delegate from Virginia. And finally, when they're getting ready to to start thinking about independence, Washington shows up to the Continental Congress, and the Congress decides, we want to form an army. They haven't declared independence yet, but we're going to form an army because we can't just, you know, say stuff without any muscle to back it up whatsoever. And Washington, do you know how he came? Remember from history, maybe? He came in his army uniform. Because he knew what he wanted. He wanted to be the, the commander, the general of the Patriot forces. And Washington was the, one of the best decorated American officers out there, so well respected that he was the unanimous choice to become the general of America's armies. And as they were working out how all of this would work, Washington said, I'm going to pay my own way. I won't take a salary. I'll, I'll take care of my household. I'll take care of all of our needs. Kind of like Paul, right? Now, fast forward a few years. Uh, The revolution is over. The uh, Articles of Confederation have come and gone. The Constitution is now being ratified, and there is an election uh, coming up to determine who will be the first president of the United States. Washington had retired to Mount Vernon. He didn't want to be president. But the people came and sought him out and said, we need you to be our first president. And he was elected all but unanimously. And everywhere he went, everything that he did, every town he visited. I want you to imagine, I read this in a Washington biography several years ago. And I was blown away by what happened because it would never happen today. Everywhere he went, the entire town closed up shop and threw a party. Because he was so universally loved by the people. Because they knew how he had worked for them. They knew the sacrifices he had made for them. 
And Washington, of course, served two terms uh, as, as president of the United States before intentionally saying no more. He set a precedent that was followed until Franklin Roosevelt, uh, which is maybe a story for another day. But in any case, uh, he retired. And uh, actually, this is even before he retired, when he was giving up command of the armies, uh, uh, King George over in England was fascinated by George Washington. And an American painter came over and, and he spoke to this, this painter and he said, what will Washington do now that there's peace? And the painter responded, well, I'm, I think he's just going to go retire and be a farmer at Mount Vernon. And King George said, if he does that, he will be the greatest man who ever lived because he didn't pursue his rights and privileges, because he didn't hold on to power, because he didn't play the game the way the rest of the world played the game. I think that illustrates what Paul is saying here. So often we see this far ahead, I need my next need provided for. When we look, we look to eternity instead, we can do these amazing, spectacular things because God's going to take care of today and tomorrow. And whatever rights we give up today, God won't fail to pay us back more than we could possibly imagine in eternity. One last, uh, <clears throat> I just said one last, but this really is the one last. I couldn't get out of this passage without reading one part of it again. says, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. He describes all the ways he does this. I don't have to be like a Jew, but I became like a Jew to win the Jews. <clears throat> uh, to those under the law, I became like one under the law, even though I am not under that same law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. And then this, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. That's what we have the power to be in Jesus Christ.